to share some things with you tonight that uh, are the result of some deep concerns of my own heart and spirit in the context of the responses of our own lives to the challenges that we face, the relationships we're involved in, um, and the demands of the sacrifice of Jesus conveyed into us and within us. Um, I am sad to report that where I would like to boast to you that um, the church of Jesus Christ is, is the most mature place with the most mature people who have the most mature attitude to everything. I'd love to have that boast, but unfortunately, um, I can't do that. In fact, sometimes I have a genuine fear that um, church is a place where those things are magnified and exaggerated in a way that they should not be, uh, that reflects upon us and begs the question, why are we in this anyway? And what do we believe about our responsibility to the wonderful sacrifice that God gave in Jesus and our call to the obedience of discipleship towards him in our world, to change our world? Sometimes I think the evangelical gospel has made the error of becoming so much about God changing us that we've lost the responsibility of us changing our world. And by that, I don't mean getting everybody just to agree with our particular brand of gospel. I mean actually by impacting the world, impacting it in, in, in every area, in justice, in education, uh, just in love and kindness and being an influence. So I want to talk to you some things about that um, tonight. Uh, a dear old preacher by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, who he and I would have some, some interesting um, uh, doctrinal conversations because we come from different roots, uh, was an incredible preacher and uh, a great man of God who's, who's now uh, long gone, but he wrote something I found fascinating, particularly coming from his base of belief. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says, there is no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this, that some people might misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that because you are saved by grace alone, it does not matter at all what you do. You can go on sinning as much as you like, because it will all redound all the more to the glory of grace. Now what he wrote next shocked me, because this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote. If my preaching and presentation of the gospel does not expose it to that misunderstanding, then it is not the gospel. There is, the, there is this kind of dangerous element about the true presentation of the doctrine of salvation or the gospel of the kingdom. That's Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, what's interesting about the things that we're questioning uh, and hopefully understanding is that the established church mindset uh, attempts to shame us out of it. I find it fascinating that I heard somebody on, on TV yesterday that Chris had recorded that I found disgraceful, I have to be honest. Um, and um, talking about the, being persecuted for preaching the cross. Let me tell you something, you're not going to get persecuted in the church community for preaching the cross. You will get persecuted if you suggest that the grace that God really brought through the cross really came in, as Brennan Manning says, we try to dim the blinding brightness of the gospel because we think it's too good to be true. And there is persecution for believing that extent of the gospel that, that um, Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about. Uh, but we are not going to be shamed out of it. Now there is a cost that goes with it, which I'm going to talk about in a moment, that concerns me and bothers me, and I want it to concern and bother some of you, because I'm going to get on your case a little bit, some of you. In the book of Galatians in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul talked about a bewitching process. He said, who has bewitched you? Who's put a hex on you, is the literal Greek. Who put you under a spell? So that you started with a full understanding of this amazing grace of God... And now you're trying to weaken it down to say it's all about works and, and, and what he calls the old law. Now, Paul also shares his concerns uh, even more, even beyond, because he says in Romans 1 verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel 
Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes for in the gospel the righteousness from God is revealed. And so Paul says, I refuse to let you shame me away from the gospel as I believe it now. And I'm saying to you, I refuse to let you or anyone else shame me away from the gospel as I believe it now. The just will live by faith, the righteous will live by faith, and we're going to live by faith in that finished work, that righteousness from God. But I also have to say that causes a problem. The problem is that that brings absolute freedom. Now you say, why is it a problem that it brings absolute freedom? Because there's nothing more dangerous in life than freedom. We are not equipped to handle freedom. Which is why even in free society, we finish up with more rules and regulations that you can shake a stick at because the truth is humanity often cannot be allowed to hold his own responsibilities for the freedoms that he has been or she has been given. And so Paul expresses this and I have to express it tonight because you see some of you, particularly some of you young people, listen to me, are making decisions that I've given you the right to make. Because you're free to make those choices. The problem is you confuse the freedom to make a choice with that choice being a good choice, right? Being free to make a choice does not say that's a good choice. It just says it's a choice, okay? So here's where for all of you and all of us the responsibility comes on us to ask a question. Because Paul says these words, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin or in a, in, in a way of belief, in a way of living that says, well, God's forgiven me. God's got lots of grace. I'm free. I'm under the new covenant. Uh, you know, grace will just be enough, which it will and which it is. So the point is not, no, grace will never be enough for that. The point is, yes, grace is always enough for that. But there is a problem in that we think then, if we just do what we do, everything will be okay because of grace. Now, in one sense, yes, it will. But in the other sense, no, it won't. Let me give you one of Paul's example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he talks about sex. And he says this amazing thing to the church. Everything is permissible. Now, I don't know many pastors across the world who dare stand in front of their congregation who are very happy to say lots of other things that Paul said. Very happy. But the same Paul also said twice... Everything is permissible, talking about sex and sexuality. But he said something else. He said everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Or in other words, you can choose to live certain ways sexually, but if you think just having the choice makes it okay, you've misunderstood that sometimes in life, the freedom to make choices and the choices we make doesn't always benefit our life. Now my issue is, I can't scare you anymore with things I used to be able to scare you with. <laughs> I can't hang you and dangle you over the fires of hell anymore and say, you'll burn in hell. If you think sexual thoughts, if you even write the word masturbation, you'll burn in hell. I can't do that. Because I don't believe that. I believe that where sin is big, grace is much bigger. However, in the context of your life, to conceive that decisions are consequence-less is foolish. Now, if you think about it, you don't even have to read the Bible for that. You just have to have an open mind, okay? If I walk off a cliff in Scarborough, I don't have to be educated or trained or have a degree in physics to understand that I will fall and I will hit the rocks at the bottom and I will probably die. Am I free to walk off the cliff in Scarborough? Absolutely. If I wish to do so, I can do it. But I would be foolish if I disregarded the issue that it may not be beneficial. Right? So the argument is not, is it allowed? And therefore, if it's allowed, everything's okay. The issue is, is it allowed? The answer is yes. Is it necessarily beneficial? The answer may be no, or it may be yes, but it might be no. So we've at least got to ask the question. He also said everything is permissible, but I'm not being mastered by anything. In other words, there are things in life that because of our freedom we can choose, but they'll get such a grip on your life 
that when you want to be free from that, you can't get free. You can't walk away. It's put shackles on you. Paul warns about this. He says, you're free. It's permissible. I want you to know that in Christ, we are not redeemed. We are not given life in him because we do good and we're not rejected from life with him because we do bad. We're given it because of the grace that flows through Jesus. However, you have to make decisions about your life and everything is not going to be beneficial even though it's permissible, and some things will master you, get a grip on you, that then you can't break. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, because you're one of those people who's now gripped by something you can't break, that started innocently, just because you wanted to be X or Y, or because you wanted to appear this or that to your peers, and now you can't get free. He also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in this context, he's talking about interacting with the culture. I won't bother you with all the details of it, but he says the same thing, interacting with the culture. Everything is permissible. I can mix, be, go with whomever and wherever I wish to go because I am free. However, Paul says, but I want you to know not everything is beneficial. Not everything is helpful to you. Not every place you go is going to assist you in your life process. Some things are going to damage you. He also said it's permissible, but it may not build you up. It might not make you a better person. It may rip the life out of you so that you never recover. Now, is that going to keep you out of God's heaven? Is that going to keep you out of God's eternity? Probably not. But sure as heck, it's going to give you hell on earth. And so I just wanted to appeal to you, particularly you young people, because you're in this process. But also you are not so young people, because the same thing applies to you. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but don't get mastered by anything. Everything is permissible, but not everything will help you. Everything is permissible, but not everything will build you up. Therefore, here's Paul's call. He says, yes, I'm not going to take away the freedom. Much as I would love to use intimidation to tell you how bad it is if you go and sleep with your girlfriend you're not married or how bad it is if you do this or how bad it is if you say that. Or... No. I'm not going to use those kinds of intimidations. I'm appealing to your heart because of the grace of God to say, is this beneficial? Is this likely to grip me in such a grip that I'll not be able to get free? Is this going to build my life or dismantle my life? Is this going to help me or is this going to hurt me? Because I care about you. I care about you. And the truth is if you make a rubbish decision, we still care about you just as much and love you just as much. Because there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Might tell you what an idiot you've been. And as somebody once said on the subject of deliverance, you can't cast out stupid. You can't. You can't cast out. Stupid's not a demon. Stupid's something that we are when we don't appreciate in making our decisions. Is this beneficial? Will this master me? Is this helpful? Or is this going to cause me not to be built up? So those are some of my concerns. Some of my concerns for you, some of my concerns for your life. Some of the things that work against us because some of you would much rather we say this, 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 this and this are wrong. You don't do that, 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 that and that. You can do this, this and this. That's not helping you. That's just controlling you. And I refuse to do that. So, in John chapter 13, and I'm going to quote it from the New King James Version, In the New King James, it's divided under four headings, okay? Here's the first heading. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. You've got to be impressed. I did these all on myself. (laughs) Jesus washes the... I nearly lost my salvation doing it, but I did these all myself. (laughs) Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Now, now you're going to see why this is important in this chapter 13. We start with Jesus washes his disciples' feet. So Jesus comes in the room. They've all been out in the dust. It's just before the Passover feast. They all sit at the table. Nobody goes to the bowl in the corner and gets the towel and said, I'm going to wash people's feet because people's feet are dirty. Now, Peter got the wrong end of the stick and thought he needed a shower. But Jesus said, no, you don't need a shower. I've said that you're clean, but you've been walking in donkey poop and donkey pee. 
and, and goat muck and you, it's all the dust and your feet are sweating and they're filthy from the stuff that you picked up on your walk. So you can deny me if you want, but you'd be stupid to do so. How many of you know we all pick up stuff on our walk? And there are times when we get a bit stinky and a bit dirty and we need someone to love us enough to say we've got to clean those feet. You, you are becoming socially unacceptable and also on the, on the case of hygiene, you're becoming unhygienic. Now the problem was Jesus saw none of his disciples would do that. So he went picked up the bowl and the towel and he got down and he washed his disciples' stinky, poopy feet with his own hands, dried them with a towel, went round every disciple and served them in that way. Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Now, keep that in mind. Second heading. Jesus identifies his betrayer. So we're now around the table and Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. <coughs> now the one who's going to betray him has sat around his table. The one who's going to betray him has walked with him for three years. The one who's going to betray him has served on his team as the treasurer of the team. He's been close to Jesus. And Jesus has to deal with the heart-rending issue. Not only that his disciples weren't willing to wash his feet or wash one another's feet, but now one of the guys who he'd taken into his confidence in love was now going to betray him. He was going to say things about him. He was going to turn him over to be crucified. He was going to turn him over to be Persecuted. Now, how many of you know we might not get that in the context of crucifixion, but we can be turned over to people to persecute us and to abuse us and crucify our name and crucify our reputation. So that's the second one, of course, that was Judas, the betrayer, of which in common language in English we talk about people being a Judas. Okay, a betrayer. The third heading is Jesus predicts Peter's denial. It's not a good chapter, this, is it? Things are not going well. Jesus is disappointed with his disciples because they ought to, by this time, have got some idea about how they should serve each other. And he has to say, look, as I, your Lord and Master, hint, have done for you, you should do for each other. In other words, I shouldn't have had to do this for you. You should have been ready to do this. He's now had to introduce the fact that there is a betrayer in the room who's going to betray him. And then he also has to predict that one of his closest disciples, Peter, who with Peter, James and John were the three closest disciples, is about to deny that he ever knew him. He's about to disown him. He's about to, after all the closeness and all the friendship and relationship, is about to say, want nothing to do with that guy anymore. Not good. Because individually, each of these could be considered sufficient reason to treat the disciples to a dose of refusal, betrayal, and denial. How many of you would agree? Yeah? Just any one of those sufficient to say, okay, let me give you a dose of your own medicine. Right? Let me give you a dose of, I'll refuse to wash your feet. I'll betray you. How about I deny that I ever knew you or that we have a friendship? Yet right between those last two sections is another one so significant that it changes everything. In between Jesus identifies his betrayer and Jesus predicts Peter's denial, it has this title, the new commandment. So what fascinates me is the new commandment Jesus is about to bring comes in the middle of a context that is racked with disappointment, disillusionment, a lack of right service, betrayal, denial. And Jesus says right in the middle of that, in all this heartbreaking, pathetic nonsense, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. If there ever was a time in Jesus' ministry where it was inappropriate outside of grace to say something, this was it. This was not the correct response in terms of retribution and reaction to what Jesus was now facing. 
It was a counter-cultural declaration in the middle of all this that Jesus said, let me state my position. Okay? The old commandments are not really washing right now, so let me give you a new one. Here's how it's going to be, and I'm going to be the first to live by it. Love one another as I have loved you. Why is it a new commandment? And why is it important we learn it? Because I get really, it, it, it irritates me up to here, or maybe even up to there, or perhaps just to there, but somewhere around there, to keep hearing people in the Christian church say that this is what God wants of us, to love your neighbor as yourself. That does not apply any longer. That was part of the old covenant was part of the old commandment but Jesus said a new commandment I'm giving you a new thing replaces the old he said and here's the deal not love your neighbor as yourself but love one another as I have loved you you see their attempts at doing the other thing hadn't quite panned out had they they'd been raised under that love your neighbor as yourself hadn't quite panned out so Jesus comes in the room, nobody washes anybody's feet. He sits at the table, he's going to be betrayed by one of his close followers. He has to leave the table by realizing one of them who's very close to him, who's been the loudest mouth, is going to deny him. He's like, I'll follow you everywhere, I'll do anything, I'm with you all, this is me. And he's going to deny him. Jesus responds, I'll give you a new command. Here's how it's got to be, love one another as I have loved you. Now, in doing that, Jesus changed the whole axis of understanding. Because he didn't say, look at how much love you have and love your neighbor in the same way. Because we've got a pathetic example of that here. Jesus said, we're going to have to change this. Here's the deal. How much have I loved you? Well, I've washed your feet. I haven't betrayed the betrayer. And I've encouraged the denier. Right? As I have loved you. So Jesus said, here's the model. Every one of you individually, forget everybody else, and just look cold and hard at how he has loved you. He said, and when you've grasped that, that you didn't deserve it, that you didn't wash my feet, that you betrayed me, that you denied me, but I loved you. When you've understood that love, love one another out of that same love. In other words, I cannot point my finger of condemnation at anybody in here tonight. Because that would say I didn't need forgiving. I can't do it. Which is why I can't manipulate you because it would be to say, I've never had a wrong sexual thought. I've never said a wrong thing. I've never told a lie. I've never cheated. I've never been angry. So that would be pointing the finger. But Jesus said, that's not going to work. He said, I want you first to appreciate how in all that's happened in your life, I've loved you without reservation. And that out of that love, I have offered you the Father's life. And I've given you the gift of eternal life. And out of that love for you, that's how I want you to love one another. Now, here's the problem. It's real difficult to become condemning to someone else when you stare in the eyes of that kind of love. It's real difficult to have a bad attitude when you stare in those kind of eyes. Real difficult. And yet all the time around me, I'm witnessing that we're not responding to one another out of that love. We are saying, I am your neighbor. You didn't treat me right. So guess what? I'm not going to treat you right. I'm not going to talk right about you. I'm not going to come to your house. I'm not going to sit with you. I'm not going to approve of you. I'm out of here because I was your neighbor and you didn't treat me right. Now, if you know if you're going to use that legal argument, it works the other way for the defense. You are my neighbor. How could you walk away? How could you be unforgiving? How could you condemn me? How could you say those things about me and not forgive me? That argument works both ways, and there are never going to be any winners. So Jesus said, we better change this. I'll just give you one so you can remember it, because it's real simple, okay? I won't give you a new Ten Commandments. 
because she obviously struggled with all those. I'll just give you one. Love one another as I have loved you and it'll be okay. I want to tell you tonight, if you love one another out of the same spirit that he has loved you, it will be okay. It will be okay. Because you just fed life in. So in your freedom, you made a choice that now will be beneficial, will bind you to something that is good, and will allow you to move forward successfully. So, there's a danger that we all want to be beneficiaries of the love of God, but not benevolent with the love of God. I have had the big biggest battle of my life dealing with this because I don't handle rejection well. Uh, I like to be liked. I don't think I'm too bad. I think I'm a lot worse than I think I am, but I don't think I'm too bad. I like to think that least. And uh, one of the problems is when we do this is, is the challenge that that all of us like to be beneficiaries of the love of God. There's nobody in here tonight that does not want to be a beneficiary of the love of God. So we don't even need to debate that. That's not even worth debating, to be honest. But what is worth debating is, is whether I am willing to be benevolent with the love of God. Okay? It's one thing to receive it, it's another thing to give it. What I'm looking for is a house of people who are benevolent with the love of God. Which means I can't upset you, hurt you, reject you, condemn you more than your love towards me. You love me more than my failures. You love me more than my weaknesses. That sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Love one another as I have loved you. So then we have a power, we have a force that's bigger than our failures, bigger than our falling outs, bigger than our disagreements that binds us together with something stronger than the stuff that will tear us apart. I'll say it again. There's a danger that we all want to be beneficiaries of the love of God, but not benevolent With the love of God. It makes phrases like, you hurt me, you upset me, not redundant, but it means I say them in the right environment where it matters to the people that it matters, and I have a conversation which is all right to say, you hurt me. I was upset by that. That caused me a problem. What doesn't work is when we go away and we don't talk to people and we don't talk to the person, but we either lock it inside and have a conversation, an argument with ourselves, or worse, we spread that out to others and say, you can't believe how much that person hurt me. Right? How does that fit with love one another as I have loved you? Where does that sit in the context of my humility that says I have been forgiven much? One of the problems I've found in a lot of churches I've gone around is is believers get on the Christian course and then actually you really get to the root of it that they don't really believe that they've done anything wrong too much. That, well, yeah, I was forgiven, but I wasn't really a sinner. Like, Jenny, you were a nice girl. You said it. And we can come to the conclusion that we are better than because we were never as bad as when the truth is in all of our hearts. We have raised up things that are a problem to God. All of us in here are idolaters. You know the biggest idol we have? And you know the ones of you who say, oh, that's not me because I hate myself. There's the giveaway. There's the idol. There's the giveaway. You hate yourself more than you let God love you. There's your idol. Your idol is, I hate myself. Some of you think, I love myself. There's your idol. For all of us, we become so self-obsessed that even just on that one point alone, just on that one point alone, we have been idolaters. We've replaced God the Father in our lives. Forget all the other stuff. Just on that one point alone. And so for all of us, if we would understand how much we have been forgiven, that causes us to be benevolent 
with the love of God. I want to say something to you right now. There is not a person, man, woman, boy or girl, who's ever gone out of relationship with me and walked away from this house, who couldn't come back tonight, right now, walk into this building, be hugged, be accepted, be loved, and be welcomed. In Jesus' name. Not a single person that couldn't do that. Because I know how much I've needed forgiving. And so there's a wonderful story in the ancient book of Genesis, just to help us with this, before we ask a few questions to finish off. It's in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 20 through 23. I don't want it up on the screen because we've just, we're just going to talk about this for a moment. And here's the story. Noah, it's after the flood. Noah's building a life with his family. Noah's now got some land and he's become a farmer. And he's grown a vineyard. It's a good idea. Because, because everything is permissible. So... Noah's got his vineyard. But you see, what he didn't think about was that not everything is beneficial. So when he got his harvest in and all his vats of wine, uh, he thought, well, I'll just give that a try. All that's good is that. I'll just have another one. And cut long story short, um, old Noah finishes up stark naked, butt naked, right? In his tent, right? He's, you know, giving it all his, all his pristine glory. There's Noah in his tent. Just not good. And one of his boys, his youngest boy, comes and sees him naked in the tent. Now, of course, in, in Hebrew culture, seeing someone naked was, was a great offense because what it meant was that you had been allowed to see the most intimate place of that person. You'd seen them at their most vulnerable and so there was a responsibility on you in Hebrew law that said you must protect people at their most vulnerable state. And so his youngest boy looks in, oh, look at me dad. Look, he's, absolutely, he's slavering, he's got sick in his hair. He's been throwing up, it's all over the bed, he's peed himself. Look at the state of the old man, he looks absolutely ridiculous. Look at his body, for goodness sake. It's already quite old by that time. Look at me dad, everybody. Hey, my dad's gone in there and got drunk, and he begins to spread the story. Now, his brothers, his two brothers, hearing what had happened, did something. They came to the tent, having heard what their younger brother said, what Ham said. And they came, and they... As they approached the tent, they took a tarpaulin, right? A big tarpaulin sheet. And the two brothers got the tarpaulin sheet and they put it over their back and walked together into the tent. Until finally they found their way to their naked, shamed father who was exposed in the foolishness of his choices exposed in the consequence of his decisions and the two boys laid the sheet over dad until he was tucked in nicely up to his neck. And what they did was they covered his shame, they covered his failure, they covered his nakedness, they covered his vulnerability. They were saying, dad, we have no desire to see your fault or failure. We have no desire to see your weakness ourselves. We have no desire to look upon where you haven't made it and where you've made a mistake. We don't even want to see that, Dad, and nor are we going to let anyone else see that. We are going to protect you from that. Had he done what he'd done? Yes. Was he guilty of it? Absolutely. Was it disgusting? Apparently, yes. But the way they dealt with him was the way of grace. They covered their father. Here's what it says. Their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness. How I long for that in the body of Christ. That when you know somebody messed up and in their vulnerable state, they've made an absolute pig's ear of life and they're embarrassed and ashamed and they think their only solution is to hide and run away. How wonderful... When people say, we don't want to look on that, don't even talk about it, we don't want to mention it, we are going to come in such a way that we will cover your shame, we'll cover your fault, we'll cover your failure. You see, what that made time for was Noah to wake up. It's good when you wake up, isn't it? Sometimes we need a little time. Some of us wake up faster than others. 
But they gave time for Noah to wake up. When he woke up, he realized his condition. But he also realized what his boys had done for him. And he realized that in my shame, in my weakness, in my fault, I was safe because of my boys. I could fail in faith. Fail in faith that that would be covered. And that my integrity would be upheld and maintained. But here's what it says in verse 24, 25 of Genesis chapter 9. When Noah woke up with his hangover... I want you to notice, it didn't not have a hangover because God was doing something. If you get drunk, get a hangover. Don't be saying, I can't believe it. God gave it. Why didn't? Shouldn't have done it, stupid. Okay? That's another evidence that, that everything's not beneficial. And there are consequences to our choices that are not the matter necessarily of, of eternal life and eternal death, but are a matter of our life and the goodness of our life and the ability of us to function and to live and for things to work and family to come together. It says, when Noah woke up with his hangover, he learned what his youngest son had done, and he said something. Now, whether you agree with him or not, it's not for me to debate. This is what he said. Okay, give me a break. This is what he said. Cursed be Canaan. Right? Now, this is the... Canaan was the son of the son who'd exposed his sin. His nakedness. So he's saying, this goes beyond just my son. This is far-reaching. The, the implications of the decision you made often go beyond the moment. They go beyond sometimes our own lifetime. Some of you in here today are the children of one of those decisions who now you still suffer the consequence of a decision that was made because there was an impact on how you were raised, what was fed into you in that consequence. And so he says, curse be Canaan, who's the son of Ham, the guy who saw him. But listen to this in the message. He says, a slave of slaves, a slave to his brothers, a slave of slaves. How many of you know to be a slave not particularly good but to be a slave of slaves see Noah's making a point here the problem is that you will be ensnared right tied up shackled connected to something to such an extent that it will like be being a slave of a slave that's not good that's about as bad as it gets but what really Noah's point was that his son and his son's son became a slave to his choice. I don't want you to become a slave to your choice tonight if your choice is not beneficial. But I'd love you to become a slave to your choice if your choice in freedom is to love one another as I have loved you. I want to be enslaved to that. So, are you foot washing or fault finding? Because you're doing one or the other. Are you foot washing or fault finding? If you're not foot washing, you're fault finding. Second question. Are you a betrayer? I want you to answer in your own heart. Are you a betrayer? What's, what's your conversation? What happens when you get with certain people who are saying things that you know they shouldn't be saying? Do you join in or, or do you stand out? Do you bring flavor or are you, are you a betrayer? Third question. Are you guilty of disowning? Are you like Peter who could sit in the presence of Jesus but when the heat was on could get into it with the best of them. I never knew the guy. I always said he was no good. Oh, I know he's got a problem, you know. And then we use patronizing statements like, but I stuck around with him anyway. I've been in a situation where I had to choose to stay. And uh, if all I can say is, you, know that I, you must know that I love you because I stayed, didn't I? That doesn't mean I loved anybody. It just means it might be to preserve my own reputation. I might be stroking my own ego. Oh, well, it was a problem, but I stayed, so look at me. 
Actually, that should never cross our lips because what more or what less should one expect than that you stay in adversity, that you stay in difficulty, that you still go into the tent with the coat on your back when someone's lying naked. What less than that should we expect? Love one another as I have loved you. Do I ever expect there to be a situation in my life where Jesus will say, that's it, I'm walking? Do you expect that? If you do, you're at great risk. Then in all of our lives, there should never be a situation that we cannot deal with that says, I would never do less than this because it's not something to stroke my ego. It's something to say, I've just learned that because he forgave me and didn't leave me, neither do I leave. But I stay in cover. So do you cover up your own faults while pointing out the faults of others? We're all great at that, aren't we? Do you cover up your own faults while pointing out the faults of others? So here's my last question. Are you willing to be one who walks backwards towards people's faults and covers them in love? So a conversation came up that was really stupid when you think about it in the light of what Jesus said. And, and it's an accusation that's often thrown at this house. Oh, there's a cover-up, right? You're covering up people's sin. Listen, there's a difference between a cover-up and a covering. And the difference is heart and spirit and intent and faith and belief. I want you to know every one of you in here that you are safe with Chris and I in your weaknesses and failures. Some of you know that we know stuff and some people didn't like that we know stuff but we know stuff and we feel honoured that we know that stuff in some of your lives but want you to know that the issue is this. We are not covering up behaviour. We are providing a covering for behaviour because when Noah woke up with his headache because he'd made a stupid decision and sometimes headaches are really good to tell you that was a dumb thing to do last night. So I pray that some of you wake up with a big headache to say that was really dumb. I don't think I'll do that again. But there's a difference between a cover-up and a covering. I believe that when Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you, he said, you provide a covering because I provided a covering for you. So what Noah did because of all that, you say, well, what happened out of that is Noah's business. We just get theologically stupid and we want to then figure out what war, what did Noah do. That's Noah's business. And when you've been shown grace, what you do actually is your business. And what I do is my business. Because here's Paul's suggestion, and this is where I'm finishing, is that we judge nothing before the appointed time. Stop it, stop it, stop it. Stop judging before the appointed time. You don't pick the time. God picks the time. Now, my personal belief is that God picked the time and the time was now. And the now was when Jesus died because the Bible says now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice and don't harden your heart, you'll be delivered. This is the day the Lord has made. I actually believe the time of judgment, the time, the appointed time is now. And I believe it connects perfectly with the cross and what Jesus did on the cross. says, okay, God's spoken his word in judgment. He's convicted you righteous. So shut up, get happy, and get on with living life. Judge nothing before the appointed time. Now, here's the problem. You can't love one another as I have loved you and judge things before the appointed time. You can't do it. The two are not together. So we have to make a choice. I'm either going to judge things on people before the appointed time or I'm going to love one another as he has loved me. But you can't do both together. If you're a controller and manipulator right now, you're just thinking, I hate this message. This is horrible. Because it brings proper freedom.
still brings the freedom in which we have to make choice that Noah had to make choice. But Paul says, here's my suggestion, and this is my suggestion to you. Judge nothing before the appointed time. And so I want to draw your attention to one specific verse in this 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that is so important. I want to help you with this. Paul says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. That is a fascinating statement. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. How many of you know when we make decisions in life, most often we believe we're right? And we make judgments on people, but we're okay because my conscience is clear. I know I've made a right judgment because my conscience is clear. And so we use our conscience as the final guide. So yeah, I... I'm okay to betray, I'm okay to forsake, I'm okay not to wash that person's feet, my conscience is clear, I feel no obligation. Paul says you can't trust your conscience. Because the problem with our conscience is our conscience is always fed through the lens of our belief system and how that's measured things by which our conscience determines its decision. Do you know, it's really funny because when you're raised in church all your life and, and you've been taught about sin and then you meet people who it's never crossed their mind that they were doing anything wrong. When, when I first got to dealing with some couples who'd been living together, well, because I was raised, that was living in sin. It was living in sin. Now, some of them were more faithful to each other than couples that I knew that claimed to know Jesus, but they were living in sin. Because they hadn't said the words in a ceremony. Now, I believe in marriage. I, I really do. I, I believe in, in confession and commitment between people. I think it's important. The, the, the first marriage had none of that. God just said a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. He said, here's the deal. You're not in that house and you're not in that house anymore. You're in this house. So get on with it, right? But I was raised, they were living in sin. Now, uh, the biggest shock to me came when, when I, I started meeting people who, you know, we've lived together for eight, eight years. Eight years of sin, dear Jesus. That is, eight, this is not just like a week. This is eight years. Like, oh, I mean, that's a proper sin. That's really, oh. And it was a shock to me when I talked to this couple to realize that it had never crossed their mind that they were doing anything wrong. They were committed to each other. They were joined with each other. They were loving each other. They were showing attributes of husband and wife, didn't have the piece of paper. But what, what challenged me was that they did not feel they were doing anything wrong. Now, the reason I'm saying this is this, because on my Christian perspective, and Ray's, it's like, ah, living in sins, wrong. My conscience was telling me, don't go there, this is wrong. Their conscience was telling them, we're committed to each other, we love each other, we intend to be together for life. Their conscience was telling them that. So I told you that little story simply to let you know, you can't trust your conscience. It may help you, it may give you some indicators, but it's massively affected by the worldview that you were raised with. That's why in some cultures still, people have more than one wife and don't feel bad about it. Why don't they feel bad about it? Because their worldview is that this is okay. If I don't marry this person, they have nobody to marry. There's not enough guys in the tribe. So if I don't marry them, they go without that and they have no... So do you see where I'm coming from with this? Okay, so, so what I'm trying to say to you is for all of us, if we try to use... Whoa, just, you know, well, I feel okay about that. It's not reliable. And the Apostle Paul, who was probably potentially the greatest Bible teacher, certainly a, a great life-expressing revelator, taking us on his journey, gave this wonderful advice. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. In other words, my conscience is not enough. Because I can feel right and wrong about stuff that I shouldn't feel right or wrong about and others can feel right and wrong about different stuff. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. The reason I wanted to bring us here is that none of us can stand arrogantly and claim our innocence tonight. 
and say, well, my conscience is clear, so that doesn't apply to me. Every one of us, if we're honest, has to stand under the light of what Jesus said and say, as you have loved me, and I sure as heck needed that love, as you have covered me, as you have been faithful to me, as you have not betrayed me, as you have washed the stuff off my feet, that's how I'm going to live out to others. That's the love that I'm going to show because it's based on you and not them. The wonderful thing is when it's based that way, it's really interesting how you begin to love them. Do you know why? Because you begin to see them in the same light that you know that God saw you. And all you see is that through flow of kindness, that through flow of need, that through flow of grace and forgiveness. So, you're free. But not everything's beneficial. You're free, but if stuff's going to tie you up and destroy the course of your life, bad decision. You can't trust your conscience because that doesn't declare that you're innocent. The only thing you can trust is your own honesty before God that said, God, if not for your grace, if not for your goodness, if not for your love, if not for your kindness, my heart could never find peace. My life could never find purpose. I could never find direction. But it's from your love for me now that I live towards others. If we do that, how many of you know we have a great community? Father, tonight, in Jesus' name, help us, help us, help us, help us, help us. We're so dumb, so stupid most of the time. Just like you described as like sheep that go astray and turn everyone to his own way because we all think we've got it sussed and done. Forgive us for our arrogance. Forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for the fact that we've stood against others and said, my conscience is clear, therefore I'm innocent without realizing that though our conscience may be clear, though the deepest thoughts in our mind might be telling us that's a good decision, we may not be innocent. We may need your grace. We may need your forgiveness. We may need you to see us in the light of Jesus, not in the light of our decision. And so as we come before you tonight, we make a commitment to judge nothing before the appointed time. And to let that judgment be your judgment, and let the time be your time, but for us to say, thank you for your love, Father. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for gracing my life. May I become bound to that grace. May I become a bond slave to your love. May I become a servant of your kindness. May I be to the world who you have been to me by your grace and through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're done. All right.